Well, uh, good evening and welcome. The Polyplexus team is pleased to have you join us for this episode of Talk Polymath, which is focusing on innovation engines and emerging research. I'm Michael Goldblatt, one of the founder co-founders of Polyplexus, and it's my pleasure to be able to introduce this evening's guests, Drs. Tony Tether and Doug Bishop. In the world of technology, in, in the world of technology, Tony and David are two titans of innovation. Tony started out as an electrical engineer, and along the way, among his many accomplishments, he served as the director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, otherwise known as DARPA, for nearly a decade. It was, in, it was a position that provided him with an unparalleled vantage point from which to both observe and shape the technologies that will influence our future for generations to come. 21 years ago, I heard Dr. Tether give a speech in which he said there are jobs after DARPA. He just wasn't sure there were as much fun. On the other hand, Doug saw his scientific training in physics and spent over three decades working in, managing, and having fun at the other innovative powerhouse, Bell Labs. After Bell Labs, Doug transitioned into a second career at Boston University as a professor of physics, electrical and computer engineering, material science and engineering, mechanical engineering, and biomedical engineering, all of which reinforce the old saying, there's nothing a physicist can't do. If you have any questions for our guests, you can submit them via either the Zoom or YouTube channels. And with that, I'll turn the mic over to Tony and he and David can begin their discussion. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mike. I, uh, I'm pleased to be here. And uh, what, Michael what Michael forgot to tell you is that he was one of my office directors when I uh, was at DARPA. And in fact, uh, he was one of the best art, uh, office directors that I had. Uh, I, had I had come over and visit us at one time when I was first there, the Vice President Cheney. And I had to decide who was going to go first. And I had Michael go first uh, because I knew that whoever went first was the one who was going to set the stage for the rest of the briefing. And Michael did an excellent job. Uh, at the end of his talk, uh, they asked uh, Michael, well, where did you come from? And he said, uh, uh, oh, God, I, I forgot the name of the hamburger place. Uh, um, what, what was it, Michael? McDonald's. McDonald's. He says McDonald's. And they both went McDonald's. And I thought, oh, there it goes. <laughs> I'm done. But he did a great job. Anyways, Michael, pleasure to have you here. I mean, you, you really were a great office director. You really motivated the people. Michael was in the, uh, the organization I used to call the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, amoebas, because that's the, that's the very lowest life there is. And from there sprouts everything. But enough of Michael. Uh, Doug, you know, you have an interesting uh, resume here. And before we talk about your activities at Brown, I'd like to have you uh, tell us a little bit about working at Bell Labs. Bell Labs at the time, and probably there's a lot of people here who probably maybe Bell Labs is a name they've heard, but don't really know much about Bell Labs. But Bell Labs was an organization for the Bell Company, and they did wonderful things. I mean, they invented all kinds of things that were good, not only for communications, but for all kinds of parts of uh, society. Uh, and and, uh, and and Michael was part of that. And I, I'd like to have you give us a, an idea before you get to Brown of how it was to be part of Bell Labs back in the days when Bell Labs was Bell Labs. Well, as you say, it was really uh, an extraordinary institution. It was an institution that was founded uh, um, to do research for the Bell system. Essentially, the Bell system had a set of rules that required only Bell system technologies go into the network. So that meant that uh, Bell Laboratories had to do research on essentially everything that a world-class telecommunication network needed. And so everything from polymers to you know, speech recognition, uh, networking, uh, you, know, you name it, they, they invented it, they built it, they discovered it. You know, for a long, long period of time, there, wasn't, there weren't any major inventions in the telecommunication that did not come out of Bell Laboratories. It was really an honor to work there. It was sort of one of those places that when I was uh, a high school student, uh, you know, in high school science class, you'd see videos made by 
famous Bell Lab scientists about this, that, the other thing, you know, solar cells or transistors or lasers or things. And you see these videos in, uh, in high school science and you say to yourself, boy, that looks like it'd be an amazing place to work, you know, smart people doing really cool things. Boy, what, a, what an honor it would be. And then, uh, um, you know, I went to Cornell, I got my PhD at Cornell, an undergraduate Syracuse, went to Cornell. Then after I uh, graduated from Cornell, I went to Bell Labs interview. And I remember a couple things. Uh, first, uh, uh, the first thing is that uh, when you get there, um, you give a talk. And uh, and I had done a pretty good thesis. I was pretty proud of it. I thought I pretty much uh, answered all the issues. And so I gave my talk. And uh, the folks there in the audience, the Bell Labs scientists, just really tore into me. And uh, you know, and so you know, kind of giving back and forth. I'm a reasonably pugnacious individual, so I didn't uh, let myself just turn a punching bag. So I kind of thought I, you know, gave as good as I got. And you know, well, not about this. Oh yes, it is. Show you this data, that the other thing. And so, a pretty contentious talk, actually, for you know, newly minted uh, PhD. It was a quite contentious talk, and these were famous, important people. And I remember. Uh, after the talk kind of slumping down in the office of my host. And I said, well, I guess I blew it. Um, you know, I got into a fight with those folks. And the, 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 you know, the host said, no, that was perfect. That's exactly what they want. You know, they want someone who's, you know, um, willing to kind of give and take. Uh, it's all respectful, but it's uh, aggressively, uh, it's, it's just aggressive scientists trying to get to the, to the bottom of things, trying to get to the truth. It was always like that. So when you have a new result that, the toughest audience you ever gave a talk to would be your Bell Labs colleagues. And if you had um, given a talk there um, it, uh, and uh, answered the questions and um, you know, didn't kind of find out any mistakes you'd made or find any kind of gotcha questions you hadn't thought about, then you were going to be all set because you were never going to uh, be treated as aggressively with back at your home institution. So that was sort of you know one thing that was great about Bell Laboratories, really just uh, world-class people who just uh, – uh, you know, thought it was their professional responsibility to really try to get to the, the, the truth of things. Um, the other thing that, that always struck me, I remember this to this day, they had two sorts of dining rooms. They had kind of a normal cafeteria. You kind of go and pick up your food and put it on a tray and go sit at some tables. It's like a normal cafeteria. They also had something called a service dining room, which is more of a sit-down restaurant. So you can sit down and the service dining room is a very fancy place. And, uh, you know, tablecloths and linen napkins and, and sterling silver and china and crystal and i'm a you know i was just a phd uh, you know graduate student at cornell i'm sitting down in this kind of service dining room and it's the fanciest restaurant i've ever been in uh some of the finest food i've ever eaten and i'm thinking to myself boy they treat scientists like rock stars around here boy this this is gonna be a place for me this is this is great um you know so it, was, it really was a, a wonderful place you know they had uh, um, lots of funding lots of support um, you were encouraged to do, um, you know, groundbreaking research. They really weren't interested in, you know, um, kind of, you know, following perturbation theory. Last year I did this. This year I'd be yeah, going to do that plus a little more. They were really, you know, every time you had some new idea about some crazy field you wanted to go in, you would talk to your boss and say, well, I've been working on this for a while, but I think I've kind of mined that particular vein of gold. Um, uh, thinking about maybe going and sort of doing some research in this area. And the answer was always wonderful, go do it. Um, you know, what do you need? What do you need from us? Money, support, time? I said, no, mostly all I need from you is a little patience. Uh, they always gave it to you. And it was just a terrific place where you could just, uh, you know, you could be working on superconductivity and then one morning just decide you were really interested in micromechanics. And so, uh, you know, one morning I decided, Superconductivity uh, answered the questions I'd set out to answer. Wanted to work on micromechanics, and uh, you know, did some interesting, important work that ultimately ended up getting into the National Academy for the micromechanics. But they strongly supported, so it's just really a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, it's really an honor to work there. But you uh, also worked at a wonderful, iconic place, Tony. You led DARPA. DARPA is a place that you know people talk about DARPA the way those of us worked at Bell Labs uh, talk about Bell Labs. So. Uh, uh, tell us, tell us all a little bit about DARPA. Well, well you know, Bell, Bell Labs, the people at Bell Labs, you actually uh, did work. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you actually were at, you know, doing the work and doing the research, uh, where, uh, uh DARPA is a, is a different kind of place. Um, uh, 
DARPA, you have to go back to why DARPA was even started to understand how DARPA operated. Uh, in 1957, uh, we were building an air defense system. In fact, uh, you know, an air defense system that uh, Bell had a little bit to do with it because we expected the Russians to come with big airplanes. And so we were, we were building this air defense system. And then uh, one, one, one day, uh, October 5th or 4th, 1957, uh, the, uh, a, a satellite was launched for the first time by the Russians. In fact, it was Ukraine that actually did all the work, but and that, that just shook this country. I mean, it shook it to the core because we all knew that if, if somebody could make something go all the way around the world, they could make it go halfway around the world. And so all of our air defense system went away. Eisenhower said, how on earth could this have happened? How could a country, third-rate country, beat the United States into space? And basically, he looked around, and all the services uh, had a space program. They all had something going on in space. And there were a lot of little space programs going on. But the space programs couldn't get enough uh, uh, leverage to go to the big time to actually have somebody take what they were doing. And they, these boosters were designed by the Army. But, but uh, in fact, a booster was even built by the Army, but, but no one would take that and go and try and fly it. The services had other problems. In fact, you know, other problems that they were trying to solve. And, and Eisenhower found what later on has been called the Valley of Death. And, and this is a serious problem in this country, it has always been. The Valley of Death is where we have researchers like you coming up with new things, and then people over on the other side solving current problems and if you come along with, hey, I got a new idea to solve a problem, you know, they're busy solving a, a problem now, and they really don't have the time and the money to, to pay you to come the rest of the way. DARPA was created to bridge the, 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 the valley of death. That's really all it really does. Goes and finds people with ideas that have that that seem plausible, that, that, that are trying to solve a problem that is very interesting or, or, or really needed, and provide that person the wherewithal to get from one side of that valley to the other side of the valley by funding them and also having that funding usually run by the, uh, uh, in this case, the government, who the person who was going to really be the benefactor of it, who would take on the job because it wasn't costing them any money. That was DARPA, and it was the most interesting place. And that's what DARPA did in, in the beginning. And that's what DARPA still does to it today. And all these things that come out of DARPA are all there from somebody who comes in with an idea that he can't get money anywhere else. If it's a good idea and they have, they have a, you know, what problem are they trying to solve type of approach, DARPA will give them the money to get across the valley of death and then to go from there. So that's basically the real difference between uh, DARPA and, and the Bell Labs, because you were those guys on that other side of the valley of death. Of course, you had, you had, you had AT&T money to try to get you across. And I'm sure you can tell us stories about how easy that was. In fact, <laughs> Why don't you give the people an idea about that? Yeah, well, it was, you know, AT&T had an interesting business model. It was a regulated monopoly, and by, by kind of law, the profit was 10% of the, the expenses. So if your profit's 10% of expenses, um, you know, what do you do to expenses? Well, you make expenses big. And if you want to spend a lot of money, what's a, what's a really good way to spend a lot of money? We'll go build a research laboratory because uh, – those those folks, uh, you know, those researchers, they can spend a lot of money, and so um, so we just had uh, a lot of support. You know, it was really sort of an amazing place. Uh, I worked at Murray Hill. There were roughly a thousand scientists and engineers in Murray Hill, uh, and there were about five thousand people uh, there, all told. And uh, and so when I was there, there were just you know huge numbers of people there that helped the researchers uh, do their jobs. You know, machine shops, electronic shops, glass blowing shops, and crystal shops, and places where you could just walk into a big room full of electronics. And, you know, it'd be like a big supermarket. You just fill up your cart full of stuff. I mean, essentially, the you know what limited the amount of electronics or you know equipment or gear you have is just you know, how much room you had in your laboratory. You just didn't have room to stack it all, let alone use any of it. Or use all of it. So it was really kind of an amazing place where you were in the um, really were in the enthusiasm limited regime. And, uh, you know, you always had uh, the resources you need. I remember on several occasions I wanted to do something as big and expensive. I maybe needed a million dollars for something. I could have a 15 minute conversation with somebody about I want to do this and this is why I want to do it, why I think it's going to be interesting and important. And, and the person says, what's going to cost? And you'd say a million dollars. And you figure at that point, uh, 
conversation can be over, but you know, more often than not, you'd be told, sure, you know, go do it. Sounds sounds interesting, sounds exciting, sounds important. Um, uh, have you a million bucks. And uh, so it really was uh, really was an amazing place uh that was really trying to focus on doing uh big important things. And uh unlike DARPA, you know, kind of uh you know incremental advances weren't really of interest. So uh, the wonderful thing about working for DARPA, I've been fortunate enough to have a DARPA grant, uh, you know, and uh, you know, they don't go go talk, talk to a DARPA program manager about a factor two improvement. They won't be interested. So you're gonna to talk to a DARPA program manager, you better be showing them some way to do things a factor 10 better than they know about. And they might be interested in that. Uh, so incremental advances need not apply. And it was really the same message at uh, Bell Laboratories. It says uh, incremental advances are going to happen uh, uh, whether you do anything or not. Um, uh, but uh, if you're going to work on something, you're going to be fortunate enough to be in a place with terrific, smart colleagues, plenty of resources, expectation of doing nothing but world-class research. Um, you better be doing something interesting, important, and uh, you better not be doing things that are merely incremental improvements. Because, uh, you know, like I said, those those things are going to happen on their own. Uh, and we wanted to do important things, so it had much the same ethos. Um, yeah, you're uh, lucky it, enough it, to be here. Do do something important. Yeah, it, it did, and, and unfortunately, uh, what it what it seemed to not have is is like a DARPA organization whose job was to take all those new things. And get them all over into the into the actually the use you know into Westing uh, not Westinghouse but uh, you know the organization that would be the ones that built things and the transition that like uh, you know you guys invented transistors right uh, and 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 in fact in fact that was kind of the end of of the Bell system because there was a the people in the United States was afraid that AT and T was not bringing the latest technology in. Uh, because they were so used to the technology we have for making phone calls now. This was not, not your stuff. And so they thought if they broke it up into pieces, that that would be an easier way to go. And of course, as you and I both know, that was a disaster. I mean, it was a disaster that uh, in, in the country uh, it, that actually worked somewhat, maybe faster on, on getting technology in. But it really was the start of the end of Bell Labs. And and Bell Labs eventually uh, was put on a block. Uh, and I remember I was in the government at that time, and and uh, and I was against it. I mean, uh, they wanted uh, they they uh, were going to sell you totally off to the French, uh, and I and, and they wanted everybody to say yes, and I said no. You know, you guys don't understand what this lab does, and we got to find a better way to use them, not sell them to, to a, the French for God's sakes. Uh, and so I I did a small part of having a, a military part still remain, but even with that, even with that, Bell Labs finally went away, uh, which is really, a, I think, a sad thing in this country uh, that happened. However, it's also happening uh, with a lot of the labs that the, a lot of industries had. Lockheed had the Skunk Works. The Skunk Works was a, not, it was a not-for-profit in the sense they didn't have to make a profit. They changed them to also be a profit-making organization. Destroyed them. Absolutely destroyed them. Because if you want to make money, you, your, 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 your performance function is different now. And, and it took away, and also a lot of the others are going the same way. So, you were really there at a great time, uh, and and I and I and I know the things you did were really great. And this country really owes a lot of gratitude to people like you for for, for the technology that eventually got out and is being used today. And uh, you know, I I I just I just think that that you're probably not recognized enough for for that part that that part of your of your your career, but. You went to Brown, right? Well, thank you. Uh, uh, now at Boston University. Boston, so, uh, Boston University. Sorry. Boston University. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, one of just to kind of a, just to kind of complete the thought about industrial. One of the problems is, of course, that companies now are evaluated in the stock market based on their price earnings ratio, and the average shareholder of stock will hold the stock for eighteen months. The average CEO might last three years. So. There's no, and then CEOs and C team get paid off basically stock appreciation. That's how they get compensated. So they have every incentive to minimize expense, maximize uh, uh, profits, um, and that, that's what boosts the stock price. That's how they get uh, they get paid. And so essentially, there's no constituency in uh, you know modern uh, large industrial conglomerates for long-term basic research kind that might not pay off for. 
10 or 15 years, there's just no, there's just nobody there who is even going to be around when that pays off. So you have the expense today and, you know, it's a little bit like the, the, the joke about, you know, the worst thing a, a football manager can do is draft a quarterback. Um, you know, if you draft a really good quarterback, you know, you'll probably be fired before that quarterback actually figures out how to play the game. That so, but you will have done your successor a favor by having drafted that quarterback and suffered through the two or three years um, uh, while that while that uh, person learns how to play the game. Um, so, so that's really the, the kind of the economics of it really argue against it. And so, I think one of the things that's uh, it's sort of unfortunate. It's uh, you know the great research labs. I think are really. Uh, um, Really under a lot of a uh, lot of pressure. Anyway, on to Boston University. So about ten years ago, uh, I got an opportunity to join Boston University. They have a division of material science and engineering there, and they asked me to go to Boston University to lead it. And I just uh, I leapt at the opportunity. I had a just a wonderful career. I always wanted to be a scientist. I was you know if you'd asked me when I was ten years old, you know it's almost sixty years ago, what I would have wanted to do uh, for a career was I wanted to be a scientist. Um, and I was able to be one. I had a great time. Um, and I spent, uh, you know, most of my career in a sandbox that somebody else had built for me and let me play in it. And then somewhere along the line, as you kind of get, you know, more towards the end of your career, you realize, well, you need to give back. And so I really uh, have enjoyed being at Boston University as an opportunity to train students. Um, you know, it's one of those things that if you're in industry, um, you know, they value you more by your derivative than your integral. You know, what are you going to do for me tomorrow? So the kind of derivative is what kind of drives how they value you, um, um, uh, not your integral. And so, you know, by the time you get to be my age, you know, your integral is looking better than your derivative. And so, uh, but the universities really do value people who um, have a lifetime of experience and can bring that experience uh, uh, to the educational process to help train the next generation of scientists and engineers. And so it's really been wonderful. It's really wonderful to be at BU to train the students, you know, whether I'm training them or training me, I guess some of each probably. Um, but it's really been a, it's really been a incredibly rewarding to have a chance to work with uh, a group of really smart kids who are just driven uh, to try to go and, uh, you know, make wonderful, interesting things happen. Um, it's amazing where, you know, you think something can't happen and then some student will come in and say, well, I did this. And you look at it and say, really? How'd you do that? I didn't think that was actually possible. I mean, on more than a few occasions, I'd be walking through the where the students are sitting and see some plot on a screen. And I'd look at it and say, what's that? Tell me what that is, you know? Well, you know, it's just uh, the other thing. I said, really? It does that? You know, you know, I thought it was going to do this, but it doing this. Um, tell me how you made, you know, made that happen and stuff. And so it's uh, it's really wonderful to have, uh, you know, to have, you know, the, the you know the students are just so um, so excited, so interested, so driven, um, and, uh, and they just uh, um, you know they just it's they're just a pleasure, pleasure to interact with. And so it's a it's a place with. Uh, Lots of uh, terrifically talented uh, scientists and engineers as colleagues. Um, probably the most important thing we produce are the students. We all do research. We write papers. We lots of, create lots of interesting technologies. But at the end of the day, uh, the thing that will live on uh, after you know, we all go to that great lab in the sky will be the students we've trained and the ones that are taking all the methods and techniques that you've figured out and you know, sort of explain, well, you know, you do it this way, not this way. Um, um, how do you know? Well, I, I did it wrong. You know myself, you know, 20 years ago. So you know, if I, I you know, it's not like I was smart to figure out how to do it the right way the first time, but I did uh, have enough time to do all the wrong ways, so I can at least tell you what what ultimately is the right way to do things. And uh, to be able to sort of hand that knowledge along uh, to the students is really uh, terrific. So I'm just uh, I'm just thoroughly enjoying uh, being there, thoroughly enjoying uh, interacting with my colleagues there. And the the students really just keep you young. It's it's really a great experience. Great. Well, you know, um, uh, just going back a little bit to, uh, to DARPA, President Eisenhower was really a very unique person. So when he had this, when he saw this happen, for him to realize that the problem wasn't that and no one was working on going to space in the United States. The problem was that nobody was was pushing that over to the other side of the gap to have people consider going to space as a solution 
that everybody was again focused on an air defense system. So somebody coming in with will 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 we'll send a missile to the other side of the world was not really accepted. In fact, was looked at as a threat. I don't know if anybody consciously thought that way, but I'm sure I'm sure that that was that was going on. So at Brown, I mean at Brown and universities in general, but Brown in particular, you know, how do you all? jump that gap between what you de develop in a university, uh, a lot of which is papers and, 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 and patents. I know the universities like to have patents so they can charge people uh, money to, to get a license on them. But, but how, do you, how, do you, how do you help your people jump the gap from, from that, that, you know, the, the gap from research to actually having somebody take it and have the real world uh, use it and, and understand that, that, that it's going? How, how do you do that at Brown? Well, uh, uh, at, uh, at uh, BU, Boston University. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm we, sorry. Uh, there are a couple different things. We, we have industrial partners, and we work with industrial partners to kind of get the technology there. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been fortunate enough is to have three students that have uh, started uh, companies. So, uh, so that's, a, uh, that's a very good way to get the technology out to the students that have worked on it. Uh, know the technology, know the opportunities, and they come and they say, I'd like to create a startup um, to, uh, uh, to commercialize it. Um, and then, you know, what do you think? And my answer is, wonderful idea. Uh, how can I help? Um, so, you know, so they'll take the technology and uh, they'll go and uh, create a small company. And it's a pretty daunting business, but, you know, they're, they're driven to try to get the technology out the door. So that's... Uh, that's one thing that happens a lot. Our, uh, our small companies that, that our students and postdocs uh, spin out um, and uh, try to try to make the technology uh, technology work. Um, I would say a few universities make make serious money with patents, but I think in a lot of cases uh, it's really more of a service that you know if you're going to convince a large company to invest in a technology that the IP has to be protected, and so uh, so a lot of places. Uh, you know, there are a few places that invent Gatorade or turf grass or you know you know billion dollar type 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 royalties, but um, most universities don't make a whole lot of money on licensing their patents. But it, it enables uh, companies to use it, even big companies or small companies. Because if you don't, uh, you haven't protected the IP, then then you can't really invest in creating you know, a company around it, invest in, in creating a product around it. You can't protect the the product and the IP. So it's really kind of a Patenting is really more of an enabling activity than a revenue generator, I think. Uh, and so, uh, maybe once in a while, you get you get some uh, you get a, a big hitter and pay some some licensing revenues. But but mostly, it's just you know if you're gonna if your research is gonna have an impact, it has to be uh, patented. So yeah, so you you have a startup and protect the IP for the startup, or work with a big company and. Uh, um, you know, they before they would invest in taking something to the marketplace, uh, they, they'd want to make sure the, the IP was uh, protected so that, so that their investment is protected. So it's really sort of something you do that enables uh, commercialization. But it really is, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's something in which uh, um, it's always a bit of a struggle. I mean, one of the things that happened in, in the Bell system, which was sort of interesting, is quite often if you were in the research laboratory, uh, and you had invented something, and then you thought that it was really time to turn it into a commercial product. Very often, they sent you, uh, the researcher, over to the business unit uh, to work, uh, be a member of the product team. And so that happened. Uh, so probably the most important technology I developed at Bell Laboratories was large MEMS-based optical switches. And so we were able to build thousand port cross connects. Uh, nobody else had uh, been able to build such a thing, but we had. Uh, Figured out how to do it, and uh, and so they uh, um, so they basically said, "You invented it. You think it's a commercial product. You know more about this than anybody on the planet. Uh, we're going to send you over to the business unit, and uh, you're going to be a member of the business unit to commercialize this this product." And uh, um, they said, "Yeah, hard to argue with that. Yeah, you're right. I uh, I know how this works." And so um, so. Uh, so I went over with the technology, built a team, and we built uh, industry's first uh, MEMS-based uh, large optical switches. And it was uh, really quite an interesting experience to go from being a more or less academic researcher to being in the business unit. Um, 
because you really just kind of saw the world from a very different perspective. But uh, but it really did make sense uh, to send people like me over to the business unit to get the technology out the door because uh, you, know, you can't uh, you can't just send papers over a wall expect somebody to read them and figure out uh, you know what the issues are. You have to kind of be there uh, working with them all day every day and uh, help uh, help sort the problems out. And uh, you know there are lots of things you know you try to build these big systems. And there'd be lots of things that you hadn't thought about. Problems would crop up, and uh, you know you'd sit there and say, "Well, maybe maybe we could do it this way, and maybe do it that way." And uh, yeah. you eventually found the answer. And so that that was a that was a method that, that worked pretty well for the Bell system was uh, to send the research over them, and then after the theme care product, they'd kind of bring you back, and you'd be a you know you'd be a, a lot smarter, better researcher. Uh, in fact, usually if you were going to become a senior manager. Uh, in the research organization, you had to have such an experience. You know, they didn't want managers whose uh, whole careers were spent only writing papers. Actually, uh, of real value and having spent some time in the business unit, you know, dealing with real world problems, it tended to make the solutions you came up with as a researcher, you know, better, more reasonable, more appropriate. You kind of understood the challenges of the the folks uh, that would manufacture the solution. So that was a that was a good and interesting set of experiences. Yeah, it was. In fact, uh, you know, uh, and, and just for the people, uh, give them an idea of what what the the MEMS approach to switches. I mean, I I know it would make things a lot smaller, or you, you know, we would we could go the we could go the uh, seven numbers. Uh, we could you know, we have a nationwide, and all of that really, I believe, came from the ability to to have a switch that was able to handle that. That type of uh, that type of uh, traffic and do it at a, at a large scale. So I think that's what you were pushing. That was a problem you were solving. I think it was a problem we were solving. So in the early days, when you had a, a nationwide network, uh, the transmission was taking place of electrons over wires, and the switching was taking place with transistors. And so both the transmission piece and the switching piece, you know, what you know, packets come in from one place and walk to another place. So there's a transmission piece carrying the packets from one state to another, switching piece deciding you know, which everything goes. In the early days of uh, you know, telecommunications network, those were all, both of those functions were done in electronics by uh, moving electrons around, either electrons over the wires or um, uh, over, uh, and then the switching was done electronically. For a while there, the transmission piece was done with microwaves over parts of it. Um, but ultimately, uh, the thing that really revolutionized the world was to go to optical fibers that essentially have infinite capacity. Um, you know, so uh, um, so an optical fiber now has uh, you know essentially an unlimited capacity. Um, but then, the tr- but that transmission piece is all optical, so you're encoding the information into photons, sending it over these glass strands, um, um, and that's how you did the transmission piece. And, you know, it's really interesting material science there. So, for example, in order for that to work, people had to figure out how to make glass, you know, not 100 times better, 100 orders of magnitude more transparent. So there aren't many things in the world that human beings have ever improved by 100 orders of magnitude, but they improve the transparency of glass by 100 orders of magnitude. Yeah, but be, but you also had to know how to feed that transmission line at a higher rate and how to accept it. And that kind of was where your your your, your technology right, right. really so, came into play, right? So the problem we were trying to solve was to the transmission piece was optical. Now, how do we make the switching piece optical? So we wanted to have an all optical network where the transmission and switching. So basically what we did was develop something which is conceptually like a mirror. So imagine you're in a room and light comes in from one window and you want to send it out another window and you can take a mirror, light could shine on your mirror, comes in from one way, kind of goes out yeah. the other way. Yeah. And so we figured out a way to do the equivalent for the light that's coming out of optical fibers. So we were able to create the technology that completed the transition from uh, electronic transmission, electronic switching, to all optical transmission, all optical switching. And so the photons could come in, stay in, stay as photons, uh, be switched uh, in the photonic domain uh, and send them on their way. And so that uh, opens up uh, huge improvements in terms of bandwidth, uh, lowers power. It has lots and lots of advantages by being able to do things that way. And in fact, some of the technologies now you know, being developed and being used in other applications like in the big data centers. And so it's a yeah. Well, good. And now, that's great. In fact, I wanted to make sure the people listening in fully appreciated what you did there. Because when, when you pick up your phone 
and, and, and go to make a call. His technology is the thing that is making that all possible or made it all possible. And as time went on, you know, it was more and more. I don't know that it's all uh, that. Uh, we're we'll on this show. We can say anything we want. Uh, I'm going to give you the, you get full credit for it. So uh, take it. Okay. I, just I'm take not it. sure I'm responsible for all the telephone. Okay. Well, okay. But let's go to some of the things you're now doing. Like, uh, yeah. my goodness, uh, how uh, traveling at faster than the speed of light. You know, superluminal travel. I mean, right. uh, you know, so tell us a little bit about that. That's got to be on the order that we're talking about here. Okay. Well, that's something I'm thinking about now. And so there's a, uh, so uh, you know, so the, I'm interested in something called the Casimir effect, which uh, is really an interesting quantum mechanical effect. So that um, you know, if you have a, a vacuum, you know, a classical vacuum, there's nothing in a classical vacuum and nothing going on, but a quantum mechanical vacuum, you have sort of fluctuations of electromagnetic fluctuations that kind of pop in and out of resistance over short distance scales and short periods of time. And, uh, and what you can do, and that's purely a quantum mechanical effect because they have finite energy, a finite number of them. And, uh, but you can take uh, metal plates and you take metal plates and put them close to each other. You can, you know, only certain allowed modes, only uh, the long wavelength modes get frozen out and only the short wavelength modes can exist. And uh, that's something called a Casimir vacuum. And so, um, so you know, that Casimir vacuum does a couple of things. For one thing, it, it produces under normal circumstances an attractive force, purely quantum mechanical force. You take two metal plates, they're quite close together. Um, they're not charged, they're not magnetic. Um, but, uh, you know, those quantum fluctuations produce a kind of a quantum mechanical attractive force between the plates, and that's called the Casimir effect. Um, that Casimir vacuum can also produce a, a regime um, with a, essentially with effectively a negative energy. And so there's a lot of discussion, a lot of thinking about whether that might be uh, something that would enable uh, superluminal travel, uh, travel faster than the speed of light. And so the, that uh, Casimir vacuum um, is believed um, to you know, perhaps make such a thing possible. So, so one of the things that I'm doing in my lab now, working with a, a bunch of clever students and uh, other faculty at the BU, uh, um, really thinking about, uh, you know, is that, is that effect real? Can we measure? Can we see evidence of a Casimir vacuum? Can we see evidence of a, of a negative energy uh, in space in between these, these plates? And is that, is that then going to perhaps uh, give us a negative energy region that might stabilize wormholes or enable the uh, superluminal travel to happen so um, that's that's great that's great uh, we gotta we gotta move on that uh, i i mean i now now here you've done all of this and then suddenly i find you in biology okay okay tissues you know uh, and it's uh it's kind of a strange transition, as if uh, you know you decided at some point in your your life in the early in the last few years that all of this other stuff you were doing you wanted to now go to tissues. So tell us a little bit about why you did that and and why he's on the order of the things that you have already done. Well, um, it turned out that uh, we have a very clever colleague at uh, uh, at Boston University, Chris Chen. I was some. Basically, a nanotechnologist, and I was talking to Chris, who's a tissue engineer, about some of the kinds of nanotechnologies we're working on, kind of structures that uh, that we're able to build, and and he said, "Wow, that's sort of amazing. Um, you know, those kinds of structures, those kinds of devices, uh, uh, would really be of interest to tissue engineers." And so we put together a team of individuals who uh, we have tissue engineers, we have nanomechanics, we have nanotechnologists such as myself, we have imaging scientists. Uh, and so we put together a team that uh, proposed to be able to control the nanomechanical environment of, of, of stem cells to produce uh, cardiac tissues. So the problem we're trying to solve is this, how do you cure a heart attack? So when you have a heart attack, when part of your heart muscles starve to blood, um, that, that heart muscle uh, basically dies and gets replaced by scar tissue, which is not contractile. And so it's, Basically, it's not like other muscles; it never grows back. So, if ten percent of your heart muscle uh, uh, has been replaced by scar, scar tissue, you're just going to have ten percent uh, reduction for the rest of your life. And so, you get managed; you don't get cured. Um, and so, we began to think about what it would take to actually create a cure for a heart attack. 
And so, um, so we realized that by being able to control the nanomechanical environment, we might be able to do such a thing. And so what we're doing is we put together a team of folks, an interdisciplinary team, really a, what they call these days convergent, transdisciplinary. So we're all kind of forgetting what our academic hats are. We're all kind of part of the, you know, the heart patch team. And we're all kind of working together to try to create a patch. And so, and so what we're doing today is growing a millimeter, centimeter scale um, cardiac tissues, cardiac patches uh, that, are, that are vascularized in some cases. And so the, the, the hope is you have a heart, you know, if it was damaged, you could put another piece of uh, cardiac tissue on top of it uh, to fix it. And, and one of the key things is that um, uh, the idea is that those would be your tissues. And so it turns out that you can take, uh, you know, adult, you know, uh, differentiated cells, you can reprogram them to become stem cells. And then by controlling primarily the nanomechanical environment, um, um, you can then take those stem cells and turn them into cardiomyocytes, heart muscle cells. And so, so the dream is uh, that if you've had a heart attack, we would then take some of your cells, reprogram them to be stem cells, reprogram them to be cardiomyocytes, grow a patch for you that we can then put on your heart. And because it's uh, your, your tissues, there'd be no rejection issues. And so you don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, immunosuppressant drugs or any of those sorts of things. And so the idea is we really, we're really focused on being um, um, a team that wants to create a cure for a heart attack. And it's one of those things that when you sit down and you talk to the tissue engineers and the imaging scientists and the, you know, the, the cardiac clinicians, and you realize that uh, you may have a piece of technology that put in, in conjunction with technology that other people are generating, you could really, um, perhaps create a cure for a heart attack. It's one of those um, things. How could you not do it? You know, you would, you would be, you know, what kind of a human being, you know, be, I mean, you know, heart disease is going to kill one in four of us. You know, it just, it's number one uh, 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 cause of death in the United States is heart disease. And if you could create a technology that uh, um, uh, reduces that, that toll, um, how could, you, how could you say no? How could you say I don't want to do it? They say, I mean, as a scientist, it's the most amazing and wonderful opportunity. So it's did I know much about biology you know, five years ago? Not much. Um, I sure learned a lot in the last five years. And it's sure been a lot of fun learning all about it. And I'm sure lucky to have you know incredibly patient, smart colleagues uh, who are able and willing to teach me. But we're we put together a team that's uh, you know making really extraordinary progress in uh, terms of creating these patches. And so it's. Uh, you know, it's a it's a big, tough, interesting, challenging problem. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's a problem that if you could really solve that problem, it would just be an amazing thing. I mean, a, yeah, I, I, I just, I, just can't understand. It's, it's I, I, I guess I guess with a person with your background, um, I I don't know. I I would have expected you to go more into uh, transmission. You know, uh, like. Uh, we have damage to the brain uh, and being able to fix those transmission paths. We have damage to the spinal cord, uh, you know, and being able to fix those transmission cord uh, lines and make them, uh, you know, repair them and, and, and maybe replace them, you know, or, or whatever. Uh, have you, have you thought about in, into that area? Cause that would, to me, well, would have been the more natural, uh, more, more natural place for you to go. Well, I would say it was, this is just pure, I'm not sure I actually made a conscious decision that I wanted to get into biology. No, but I know, but, getting, but when you get into biology, I would have, I would have thought that you would have gone more towards what you you, you kind of knew in the past. You know, that's, Well, that's, no, I got into something where I had an opportunity to get into something that okay, there was a technology that the biologists appeared to be interested in. And yeah. so uh, it was just driven by, by, more, by more serendipity and opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that when you realize that, you know, that some of the nanotechnologies you've been developing uh, could solve this particular problem, um, you know, there might be either a whole host of uh, big, uh, tough, important problems. This was one in which uh, there is a team of folks that is uh, able and willing to work on it. Uh, they wanted me to be a member of that team. And so we put together a team. We competed for and won an NSF Engineering Research Center. Where doing uh, amazing and interesting uh, uh, you know, work on the problem. We have uh, 
not just technical work. We have some, you know, terrific education programs that I'm really quite proud of as well. So we're training the, um, the terrific students that we're uh, training in, in these areas. And so it really is a, a wonderful opportunity. But it, it wasn't so much me saying I want to get into biology, which one makes the most sense for me. It was really me just saying, you know, um, you know, this particular thing is an opportunity. There's a team that I that I can join, a team that I can be a, a member of oh. and contribute. What what is a Tesla magnetometer? So this is something that uh, this is an auto Tesla magnetometer. So this is something that leverages uh, the Casimir effect. So you know, so I told you that there's uh, um, that there's sort of attractive force that takes place with Casimir force, and you know that that's a that attractive force is 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 very interesting because it goes like one over d to the fourth power as opposed to like one over d squared like like gravity or or Coulomb attractions. And so the force depends in a very sensitive way on, on position. And so if you have uh, a, um, uh, an object that's uh, vibrating, and then you have another one that's vibrating at twice the frequency, you can get a Casimir coupling between this thing and, and this thing. And then it turns out that the amplitude of this thing depends very sensitively on the, on the, the position of this thing. And so essentially, you, using the Casimir effect, you can build a quantum displacement amplifier that uh, uh, gives you sort of a factor of 100,000 uh, improvement in measuring small displacements. And so you can turn that into a, an Atta-Tesla uh, magnetometer. And so, um, so that's the kind of technology that let you see uh, submarines uh, through 100 miles of uh, seawater, for example, uh, you know, GPS denied navigation, things like that, uh, measuring the magnetic field from the heart, magnetic field from the brain. Um, so that's an example of a quantum sensor that uh, that uses uh, um, uh, the use of the Casimir effect to build a, a, a very uh, very interesting sensor. Uh, okay, let's see. Um... Well, Tony, yeah, there's some interesting questions. We've got about uh, 13 minutes left. Okay, and there's some interesting questions coming in from uh, the audience. Uh, okay. Maybe one of them is for both of you. Um, it, it actually, is, I'm going to synthesize the question uh, from a couple. Is there a successor to Bell Labs as a modern innovation engine? There are a lot of excellent uh, uh, research labs. Uh, Google has a terrific research laboratory. Microsoft has a terrific research laboratory. Bell Labs hasn't gone away. They're not, they don't do much physical sciences research anymore. They mostly concerned with sort of networking things, but in the areas they still work in, they're, they're an interesting research lab. Uh, T.J. Watson Laboratory for IBM is an excellent research lab. But I think the, for the sort of economic reasons that I've sort of talked about earlier, those are really a, a very a very tough sell uh, in the current environment. And so it's really hard to um, take the, the you know, set of fundos in quite the same way they were kind of during the glory days. Um, but there's still some some excellent research laboratories. You look at, for example, the work that's going on in Google Labs. Um, you know, they, they're doing some amazing, interesting work in quantum computing. I think they're uh, among the absolute leaders in quantum computing. And so, in the areas that they think are relevant to, that may be relevant to their businesses, obviously, computation is one of them. They're doing some uh, terrific and interesting work. Uh, I know Microsoft is also doing some interesting work in quantum computing as well. So, uh, the industrial labs haven't all gone away. Uh, but they're definitely, I mean, the, the, they're, they're definitely feeling a little bit like uh, an endangered species. It helps to be a research laboratory in a company that's uh, doing really well in the marketplace, uh, like Google or Microsoft or those sorts of companies and stuff. So it helps to have a, a, a healthy parent uh, to work in those laboratories. Yeah, I would say that uh, the closest I know uh, is IBM. Uh, and of course, IBM is a you know huge company, and, and it's sort of on that order of, uh, of Bell. Uh, and one of the things I know IBM is doing, in fact, uh, Michael, I think it was you're, you're the one that probably kicked it off, was to develop a memory the size of the brain. I mean, and also the also with the, the, the number of bits that the brain has, and 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 once if you could do that, uh, and you could find some way to store information in it and retrieve information. You effectively are on your way to really create, creating a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a fantastic uh, uh, a, a, a source of uh, ability to solve problems. 
on the fly that is that is very small. So I, I, I say IBM probably is the only one I know that is on the order of uh, of, of what what Bell Labs was 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 like. And uh, another question that, that people had uh, that's for both of you is that what are the top two technical problems that you'd like to be, see overcome? Well, I would say there are two problems. One's technical, one's societal. I would say I would dearly love to be a member of the team that creates a cure for heart attack. That would be a terrific thing to do, and that kind of consumed me. The other challenge is really one that has to do with uh, um, underrepresented groups in, uh, in the STEM field. Um, you know, if you look around, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, those working in STEM fields, you know, still don't look like society at large. And so there's still, uh, uh, you know, it really is a problem. And so it means that, that all the people that could, uh, be working in the STEM field, all the people could making uh, could be making important advances for various uh, you know societal reasons aren't. And so, if you look at uh, the under underrepresented groups uh, in the STEM field, you know it really is uh, it should be an embarrassment to us all uh, those who are working in the field. Somehow we haven't figured out how to make it a more welcoming, uh, conducive place, so that uh, you know no matter. Uh, uh, no matter what, you can work in STEM. And so, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, I've been involved in programs over the years. Uh, you know, I think essentially all of us have various uh, things. It's something that's important to all of us. And uh, the amount of progress has really been uh, negligible. It's really, I think it's a, it's a source of great embarrassment to us all that uh, why isn't, uh, you know, why are or why are not those working in STEM more representative of society at large? Why are uh, why are uh, why are there underrepresented groups in in STEM? And I think that's something that some of the programs in our ERC were trying to solve some of those things. But there's probably no magic bullet that solves it. There were they're going to solve problem, but I think that's an example of something that um, that uh, you know all of us who have been fortunate enough to work in STEM really uh, owe, uh, owe it to the field at large to figure out how to make it more diverse than it currently is. So those are the two things that kind of uh, that drive me. Well, I would go, uh, I would go on, on, and in fact, it's another area that, that Michael, uh, when he was a director of, uh, the, uh, of the research office in DARPA, uh, was is the ability to uh, uh, think to a, me a mechanical object and have it do something, you know, turn on the lights, um, drive the car, you know, being able to actually control uh, mechanical things by thinking of the action rather than having to use your your arms and hands. And he showed that that you could take a mechanical arm and have a person learn how to control that arm just by thinking about it, by saying, pick up, use this to close and pick up something. And, and and it took a little while, but people would actually learn how to do that. Uh, and I and I that technology is uh, the pace has been linear in the last twenty years. I, I don't really know why why it hasn't become nonlinear. You know, usually something usually takes off, but but I do believe that if we can learn how to do that, it will change everything. I mean, it will be such a momentous change in in uh, in, in the world and the way uh, people build things and do things. That to me, that that is a technology that also might be very dangerous too. I'm not saying that all things are come up, uh, you know, really good for mankind, but it will it will be something that will happen, and it will be a major major uh, shift in, in mankind and how we evolve uh, in, into the future. That that's that's a. I mean, there are other technologies, but as far as one is which is extraordinarily going to be disrupted to mankind, that's the one I I, I think of uh, that is going to do it. it. May not be the we may not like it after we've done it, but I, th I think that's the one that's going to do it. What else you got, Michael? Well, okay. There's there's a, a technical question on magnetometers here. Um, it says magnetometers based on diamond sensor technology offer significant opportunity for PNT and require precision maps of the magnetic terrain. Are these sensors and data? ready for defense and commercial PNT? 
I do not, not think they're ready for prime time. I would say they're still mostly research prototypes, as far as I can tell. I haven't done an exhaustive study, but I think there uh, there's a lot of promise. And so, um, so uh, it's a technology where basically you put sort of single uh, vacancies in the diamond crystals, and uh, uh, you can create quite sensitive magnetometers for position, navigation, timing. And uh, um, I would say, from what I can see, um, uh, they're not ready for commercial application yet, but the, but the research work is quite promising, quite interesting. Um, and uh, I expect uh, uh, before very much longer, we'll be able to start to see them applied um, in, uh, in these sorts of things. And so one of the things that, for example, the DOD is quite interested in is, um, is navigation and GPS denied uh, areas. And so it's not at all clear that uh, the GPS system will be able to work um, in the combat zones of the future. And so, so how does one do uh, navigation? How does one have precision uh, weapons um, uh, in a GPS denied uh, area? And one of the possibilities is to have uh, sensitive magnetometers and use that as a way to, um, to measure your position. And so um, there's a lot of thinking about the by using you know magnetometers uh, for that. Um, also, there's uh, uh, some of the other applications I talked about using these things for measuring magnetic field of the heart, magnetic field of the brain. Um, you know, they're 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 you know you know one would really like a small chip scale device you can use to measure the magnetic field of the heart, so you can do continuous uh, monitoring the heart without having their wires attached to you by measuring the magnetic field. You can do contactless measuring of the heart. You know, to measure magnetic field of the brain. Um, you know, uh, if there are going to be seizures and things like that, there are magnetic anomalies that you can detect. And so I think there's a lot of promise for, for ultra-sensitive uh, magnetometers. The one I'm talking about, uh, stuff I'm working on is based on the Casimir effect, but there's uh, this other work on this, uh, uh, vacancies in diamond that's also quite interesting and promising. Okay. And, and there's, if I can... Um... I can synthesize a bunch of questions uh, again. Um, this one's a little bit tougher, I think. Um, how do we best fund disruptive technologies, given that it's hard to identify uh, the successors to a, a Bell Labs or, or even to a DARPA that have broad, broad appeal across many uh, non-commercial areas at the moment? Um, uh, so the, the question that, that, is, that I'm trying to synthesize here is that in your, uh, in your ideal world, how would you like to see the possibility and potential of disruptive technologies being developed in the future? What's the funding mechanism? What's the, the nurturing mechanism? And how do they get through that valley of death? Well, you know, uh, Michael, you kind of, you can guess what my answer is. Uh, uh, the, the DARPA model, the ARPA model, uh, has been going on for many years, and it it has it has the, the best thing about the, the the ARPA model is that no one is there long enough uh, to basically uh, uh, can get content in in uh, you know in funding something. Uh, people are are there three years, which means that and, and nothing is ever finished in three years. So somebody new comes in. So there's always a yin yang of people coming in, and people who are doing the research are constantly being pushed. Uh, as you know, we had a set of questions that everybody had to ask: What is the problem you're trying to solve? What difference will it make? Long before you get into the technical details, as being one of the things that that people had to stop and think about: What am I doing? What difference will this really make? And 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 and, and I think that is the way you you. You, you 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 end up selecting technology that if it can be done and sometimes it can't be done but at least if it can be done it's going to solve a problem that is really a revolutionary problem and you keep doing that until finally something works uh, I really do think that's that's the technique that you get away from feel good meetings and all of that on solving and on, on, on allocating money uh, you and, and I believe that that is is a, a good approach and, and as you know uh, you lived it, I lived it, and we saw the outcome of, of doing that. Uh, David, I don't know. what. what, what well, else? I guess I'll, I'll give you the least surprising answer in the world. The university professors, you should give more money to universities. 
Uh, you get more money in the university faculty. That's probably going to be a headline in the paper tomorrow. University professor says, you know, we, we need more money. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But you so, see, uh, it's, it's sort of the um, output. What can I say? I think it's the right one. Uh, no, no, it, it's, it's good to give more money, but it's the output. How do, how do you give money to a university and have a university get output oriented? Uh, well, as opposed to as opposed to paper oriented or, or you know sort of change the uh, the, the change the the, the the calculus for for reward okay well I think I think the, the I think the faculty researchers you know uh, certainly the ones I interact with you know are trying to create uh, things that have an impact you know we want to do more than just write papers and uh, you know one of the problems is that if you look at sort of the you know the funding agency I'm not complaining I love the NSF uh, but uh, you know they have an awful lot of proposal pressure, and so for most programs, they, they might fund five uh, percent of the of the proposals that get submitted for a particular call, and so that's a you know that's a tough environment for something uh, wild and crazy to to kind of. Uh, I got it, but you know what? And unless unless you could show me that the ninety five percent was trying to solve problems that would be earth shaking to the world, I don't have a feeling for it. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that when the funding uh, rate gets so small, uh, I think that the, that the funding decisions can uh, get to be pretty conservative. And so, um, you know, I think that when the dollars are dear, um, it's harder to take a, a flyer on something that's a little bit crazy. I know. But, uh, I know. but that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, you know, back me pretty good at figuring out how to how to get funded and how to play the game. When you guys when you guys were at Bell, you weren't thinking of uh, anything but revolutionary uh, type of outputs that would change the way we did business, right? Because we worked at a place with uh, essentially unlimited money. Um, that's not the that's not the. Well, they they still they still allocated the money to people and and, and people who had a, had an idea that was going to change the way and, and make more money for them by having costs go down. They're the ones that got funded. Anyway, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. We, we get more money to people like me. Um, I know, I know. You, you, you were, you were an exception. You were an exception. Well, anyway, uh, but I, I think, the, I think that, uh, you know, you know I, I think some of the place of renovation uh, uh, used to take place. Uh, you know, things are evolving. Things are changing. Uh, we haven't talked about uh, national laboratory. There's some, some first-rate scientists and engineers in national laboratories. A lot of interesting work takes place there. So there's basically um, uh, three institutions uh, in the country that where innovation takes place, uh, you know, uh, universities, um, national laboratories and industry, I would say for some of the reasons. And, and um, there are, there are still, uh, uh, you know, non, non, uh, you know, companies like SRI and so forth that still are there punching the, punching the bag, you know, um, and, but, I think it all comes down to having somebody like an Eisenhower that said, I now see what our problem was. It wasn't that we weren't doing research. It was that we, we, didn't, we didn't figure out a way to have that research get into the hands of somebody who wanted to use it because they didn't know about it or it wasn't articulated in a way that they understood it or whatever the reasons were. And he, 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 he created an organization which basically has gone a long ways towards that's the job. You know, not, 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 nobody's there long enough to actually get a Nobel Prize, but the job is to find those things that will really make a difference and then to fund them and, and, uh, to make sure that that happens. And also to get them involved with the people who are going to use it early so that they get to understand it uh, be, rather than have it put on them at the, at the end of the, at the end of the, the day, you know. But that's that's just my my viewpoint, and I'm an old guy, and I'm not going to change. Okay. I'm older than you, so I'm not going to change. <laughs> well, I think I think the accumulated wisdom among both of you uh, says a lot, and it's interesting <laughs> that, that you have a common heritage in the Heilmeier Catechism uh, yeah. from Bell Labs and from DARPA, and and that's probably as good a place as anybody who's interested in disruptive research to begin to frame the issue. And, uh, the other thing that, that, that comes up uh, when I met both of you earlier uh, about getting disruptive research funding, I would suggest is learning how to sell. I think both of you would say that, that, that a big part of science is selling the idea. Right. What is the problem you're trying to solve? 
and uh, that's a that's a, a good way to end this uh, this podcast and to thank both of you for a, a very stimulating conversation, one that uh, tied the past with the future, and um, uh, thank both of you uh, tremendously. I, I hope everybody else enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you for inviting us to talk to uh, you know talk yeah. to the audience. It's really been a Interesting conversation. I very much appreciate uh, uh, being invited to participate. Yeah, and, and I just want the people to know that Michael Goldblatt was one of my exceptional uh, office directors. Even though he came from uh, that's Burger, hamburger. Burger <laughs> okay. I'll see you. Bye-bye. I had a clown for a boss, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You didn't mean a clown was me, though, did you? <laughs> Ronald. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. Bye bye. Good night, gentlemen.